Well, today, um, we look at our title is When Sovereignty is Startling Fears Antidote. And we find ourselves on the threshold of a new year, and we look forward by the grace of God to see new mercies, new providences, new displays of his faithfulness. And a new year typically begins with a hopeful expectancy and hope of blessing. And at the same time, we also as believers, we enjoy a degree of realism. This realism may indicate that this year we might have more reason to fear than perhaps we've had in decades. For example, and I'm just gonna give a few of them, we have ongoing wars and fear of new wars. We have fears of terrorism, we have fears of health, we have fears of employment. You have companies that are employing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You have companies that hire not on the basis of experience, but on many other reasons. And the question is, how can you survive if you don't go along with all this? We have fears of where to find the truth. We have an, an enormous proliferation of information and even previously trusted sectors in our society that we would trust implicitly today, it's oftentimes sadly not the case. We have fears of what comes next. What do you think of when you're sitting at your home, it's nine in, nine in the night and it's dark, and all of a sudden the lights go off? And you say, well, last time I remember when the power went off, all the, fridge in my, all the food in my fridge got spoiled. What's gonna happen this time? Our power went off six times this last year. What do you do when you visit the doctor and the doctor says, cancer has returned? And your mind goes back and you remember the first time. You remember the chemo, you remember the discomfort, and you wonder, will this time be any worse? and we could go on and on. And to add all this, we could say, what about eschatological fear? Those of us that know the end times of the Bible, how the Bible spells it out, you see God's prophetic calendar, and even though here in this church we hold to the fact that the rapture happens before the tribulation, we know that main events cast a long shadow, and you wonder what will happen before. And these are just a few examples of how when we face a situation, the fear of what happened in the same situation before can cause us a fear of what will happen again. We have death, sickness, calamity, unknown events, the future, evil, finances, job, persecution, injustice, pain, slander, sadness, the weather, maybe being alone after being married for 65 or more years. And I could go on and on. My point is, how do you and I face a year what may be a year of increased uncertainty and fear? Now, you know, we have no assurance these events will happen or not, and I don't want to be a grim forecaster, but I'm only highlighting that we do face uncertainties. Now, I need to say this because of balance. Warren Wiersbe says this, fear is a normal human emotion, and there's nothing wrong with it. We use the fear of sickness, injury, or death to teach children to wash their hands, stay away from power lines, and to look carefully before crossing the street. So let me say this. There are legitimate instances of fear. For example, the Bible says we're commanded to fear the Lord, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. We're commanded to what? Be angry, but sin not. Both, both are emotions, fear and anger. But you and I live in a fallen world. Sin has affected our entire body. And even though we are redeemed, and even though that being the case, we still have a sin principle within us. We can express our emotions in ungodly ways. And what I want to address today are those cases of fear 
where an inordinate fear might lead to paralysis, or improper fear might lead to unbelief, or where a predominant fear might lead to worry, or where fear can lead into being anxious. And there are legitimate instances of a healthy fear, but many of those things that I just outlined in 2024 are things that we ultimately have no control over. However, fear in any instance should lead us to trust in the Lord. In fact, in fact, if you listen to this passage where Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a legitimate instance of a right fear. You fear of dying, facing judgment, that should drive you to consider Christ who died for us. Now, there may be those who are listening to think, Paul, you just outlined a grim forecast and you're just pandering and instilling unnecessary fear. But I want to say this. We as believers of all people can be the most realistic because we have a God in the heavens that's in control. Over and over, when it comes time to living in the last days, the New Testament uses the phrase, be of sober-mindedness, be of sober mind. And what I just outlined is not a cause for fear, it's a cause to look to the Lord. Now, just on a personal note, what I'm sharing with you today is what the Lord has been teaching me, and I say present tense, teaching me, not has taught me, over the past several years in times of fearful trials. During that year, we were faced with going into ER more than five times with multiple health concerns for my wife, sometimes waiting over 20 hours in the ER in pain, not knowing if a bed will open up. Each time, we never knew, is it gonna get worse? Is it gonna get better? Is it gonna go away? The, 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 facing, it was, the step ahead wasn't clear. But I knew in my head God was sovereign. But there's a difference between intellectual assent, knowing all the statements in the catechism, God is sovereign, versus in your heart, knowing that God is sovereign. There's a difference between knowing God is sovereign and trusting that God is sovereign. Not only this, I had another challenge. When, when we go through an excruciating trial and the Lord takes you out on the other side, there's another fear. You fear, will it happen again? If it happens again, will it be worse than the time before? And again, you can go from fear to fear. But again, what is our firm foundation in the face of fear? Now, it's interesting in the Bible, the most often reported command is what? Do not fear. I counted over 81 times the phrase, shall not fear or do not fear. The word fear occurs more than 299 times in the Old Testament and New Testament. And that's not counting the derivatives or the parallel words to fear. Why do you think that is? <laughs> because we're a fearful people. And the Lord compares us to what? Sheep. You know, I grew up on a farm, though I didn't have sheep, I had relatives that did. Sheep are one of the most fearful, skittish animals there are. I read an article where sheep were in a pen and a shadow went over them, or a dog jumped in the pen. They all jumped on each other and they all died. I mean, that's an apt description of you and I. I mean, when I'm a boy, I'm scared that there's a monster underneath my bed. And you just elevate it as you get older, we just go from one thing to another. That's, that's how we are. 
Now, before we look at antidotes to fear, I want to talk just a few, just a few things of ineffective ways, ineffective ways that we commonly face fear. And please understand, what I'm giving you today is an outline. It's something that you can go back to, and actually, every one of these could almost be a sermon in itself. So forgive me for, sometimes it's hard for me to brush over some of these things, especially in the second part, but I'm trying to set it up for looking to the Lord. That's my desire for all of us. So the first ineffective way we commonly deal with fear is trite sayings, trite sayings. Jeremiah 7.4. Jeremiah 7.4, we read this. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now in context, Jeremiah is rebuking Israel for the statements that they make with their mouth that are far from their heart. They are saying the temple of the Lord three times. They trust in religious overtones while denying the reality of what they say. The temple of the Lord. It, it doesn't occur to them. The temple of the Lord is where a holy God of Israel dwelt. They looked at it just in terms of a charm, a lucky charm. They're saying words as a charm. And as a chaplain, I oftentimes see when someone dies, I see someone says, well, you know, it'll be okay. And there's no background to it. And I understand that we encourage each other and there's a context for that. But oftentimes I hear the statement, he or she's in a better place. And you never ask, well, how do you know that? You know, Some people never think of eternity, they never think of heaven, and they give a quick thing, oh, he's in a better place. But how do you get there? What is the better place? How do you know for sure? I can't ask those questions, but again, people have a way of just attaching trite sayings to satisfy fears. And there's a second improper way that we often find ourselves to respond to fears, and that's naivete, naivete. Listen to these two sections from Proverbs. Proverbs 14, verses 15 and 16. The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. And then Proverbs 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Here you have a contrast. The naive go forward with no concern. They just don't consider what's ahead. That's contrast with a sensible man, which by the way, in the New Testament, you can use the term someone of sober-mindedness. The Old Testament says sensible. You consider your steps. If I do this, or you consider those things. And it says a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. You just go right ahead, like lemmings, oftentimes. And, and so, again, you've all heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss. You know, and, and today, it's very interesting. When you look at ignorance is bliss, I think there's more information available today than we've ever had. But the question is, is there discernment to go along with it? I talk to many people that get their news, for example, off YouTube but you don't know YouTube has an algorithm. Under that algorithm, they exclude many things that are truthful and they feed things that, that are not true or are half true. And people get their information from that. Today, more and more, it's not the amount of information for ignorance, it's discernment. Discernment is one of the biggest things that's lacking. There's a third thing that we turn to oftentimes to deal with fear, and that's human strategy, human strategy. I, Psalm 118, six through nine, we read this. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Then he goes on to say in verse eight of Psalm 118, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. 
it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So here you have two ways of facing fear. Trust in the Lord or you trust in man. Now, I have to be careful here because many times it's both or it's one or the other. I'll give an example. Remember Moses when Israel left Egypt and they had the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians behind them. They couldn't go forward, they couldn't go backwards. What did Moses say? The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. In other words, <laughs> we couldn't do anything. It had to be only the Lord. But also, to be balanced, I need to mention what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah said this, at whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Nehemiah says God will fight for us. But then the very next verse you see, so we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. So what was Nehemiah trusting in? Was he trusting in their own ingenuity of spears? Well, not really, because he said, our God will fight for us. Here you have the balance. The Lord gives us responsibility. We take what responsibility our can, but that doesn't supersede or mean God will fight for us. We do what we can, but ultimately it's God. And so, again, we could say much more about this, but I just want to say that ultimately it's God, even though we use human efforts. There's still another reason that we face um, improperly fears. And I want to mention something that is particularly true with believers. And that would be an improper fear or an improper understanding of God. It's an incorrect fear of God. A fear not of God's holiness, but what God might do next in his sovereignties. You see, what I'm trying to share is that when we face an excruciating trial, without warning, even maybe without attribution, trials which have no clear ending, certain kinds of trials which can elicit paralysis and fear, you wonder what will happen next. If God did this, am I, is the next one going to be worse than what I just faced? And, and that's a fear that's very common. And just listen to me, just, just think about it. So you know God, and you know he's sovereign, he did a trial, but you fear God because you don't know if something's gonna happen next. I have a good friend in another state who's church planting, we've known him for over 25 years, their teenage son died, and one of the struggles that they had was, you know, you know God is sovereign, but is God good? He just took away my child, how can I trust him? Listen to Job. This is very interesting. You can take the issue of sovereignty in Job. It's a very interesting study. Job says this in Job 23, verse 13. He said, but he is unique. That's speaking, Job is speaking of God. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Job saw the sovereignty of God in his trial. He said, he performs what's appointed for me. God does it, he's appointed, he's in control. He has decrees with him. What God desires, he does. He sees the sovereignty of God. Listen to the very next verse in Job 23, 15. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence when I consider I am terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint, the Almighty who has dismayed me. Job came to a point where he was terrified of God. How can that happen as a believer? He's terrified because he correctly attributes his circumstance to God, and we'll look at this. It was even Satan did it, but it came under the sovereignty of God. He was terrified. He was terrified of God, but he acknowledged God's sovereignty. You know, this brings into play a frequent misunderstanding by believers. 
believers call into question the providence of God, and they incorrectly state God's providence. I have heard people say, if someone, let's say someone is, well, uh, let's, you can incorrectly say, let's say someone in your family is murdered. Someone can say, God did it. That is an unpastoral, unshepherding way to say the sovereignty of God, but yet God is still in control. My point is, how do we how do we look at that as believers? I want to begin, first of all, that first of all, you have to say in James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So when you look at trials, you cannot correctly say many times that God is the one who's doing evil. You can't say that, because God can't. Um, for example, um, and this fear, is very common. Um, I read uh, a quote from Lon Solomon, who, who uh, his, both his wife and his daughter were burned, and he had to go to two separate hospitals simultaneously. He said this, brokenness terrifies us. We were scared of what brokenness is going to require of us. We were scared of what God may do to us. Fear causes us to shrink back from surrendering to God's will and breaking us. And he says the solution is God's promises. That's where Job was at. He was afraid of God because God took all his children. God, he became sick. Um, and therefore, Job is correct in ascribing his situation to God. It's not correct that God directly, that's the key, directly did these things because God cannot do evil. How do we look at this? Remember in, in Job, God told Satan, behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. God was in ultimate control, even though Satan was the one that directly did it. It's a difficult issue. How does the sovereignty of God work with the actions of man? We call this in theology the doctrine of concurrence, how a sovereign God uses the actions of men to accomplish his will. And we can't understand all of this, this side of eternity. I'm just gonna to try to share it with you because this is a struggle when you face trials and fear. One of the clearest passages in scripture that outlines this is Acts 2.23, speaking of the death of Christ, the greatest tragedy that happened on this earth. And, and the Luke writes, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who put Christ to death? It was God's plan. We know that through scripture. It was God's plan always to send a savior. We read that in, in, at the fall when, when, you know, when God cursed man because of his sin. He said, uh, we see that right there. And here it says, that it was God's plan, but it says, you nailed to the hands of godless men. And the same thing with Joseph. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. How do we reconcile that? Let me just give you one way, and this is incomplete, but hopefully it's a help. One of the ways to look at it is that in providence, God is the first cause. God is sovereign, everything happens under his purview, but the second cause, the one who does evil, is not God. God frequency, frequently uses evil and the disobedience of his preceptive will to accomplish his decorative will, meaning God, under God's will, everything that happens is under his decorative will. He's in control, he's not sovereign. He accomplishes that by people disobeying his preceptive will, his commands. Um, and for example, 
Lon Solomon says this. He says one way of looking at this is that God allows it. And he says there's really no difference between a sovereign God allowing something. Because if you say, if God doesn't allow it, it doesn't happen. God is in control. So that's why God didn't allow it to me isn't a, the most helpful way of looking at it. It's better to say God is, is behind it and he uses other people to accomplish, accomplish his, his will. Um, now, I want to give, as we go forward, I want to move from just some ineffective ways to face fear into some, how can we um, fight fear? What are some antidotes? The very first thing we need to start with <clears throat> is God himself, God himself. And I want to give you a foundation. Psalm 112 says this, Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Verse 6 goes on to say the result. This man who fears the Lord will never be shaken. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear. And so we see the result of fearing the Lord. We won't be shaken. All those things I read to you at the beginning of the sermon, we fear the Lord, that is a greater fear that will dispel other fears. God himself is the firm foundation, the bedrock of our antidote to fear. Everything that I'm gonna say today gets back to God and his character. Uh, listen to this, Philip de Corsi, he's a pastor in Southern California. He grew up in Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s. And for a time, he was in the Royal Ulster Constabulary. That is the opposite to the IRA, where there was great fears of terrorism. It was just as dangerous to be off the job as it was to be on the job. He said this, I had to learn security is not the absence of danger, because that's an impossibility in Northern Ireland as a police officer. It's the presence of God. When we talk about fear, we're not talking about having nothing to fear about. That's normal. <laughs> we will have those, but it's the presence of God. You, you and I will not experience no danger until we get to heaven. So we have to begin with God himself. And as we look at God himself, I want, there's, <laughs> there's so many aspects to God's character, and every aspect is, can encompass do not fear, but I want to look particularly at three. What are some aspects of God's character that can be a bedrock when we face difficult circumstances? The first one is God's omniscience. God's omniscience. God knows. And we've been through this psalm several times in this church, but I, I need to highlight it. And everything that I'm giving you are places in Scripture that over and over and over for the last two years I went through it. I would read Psalm 139. I would read Psalm 46. And several things happens, and I'll try to point this out. When you're reading Scripture, number one, you're not thinking about your fear. That's the first thing. But not only that, when you're reading Scripture, the Lord is, you, you what does the Bible say? Faith by hearing, hearing by the word of the Lord. How do you, how do you increase your faith is by the word of the Lord. So there's a lot of things that happen when you ruminate, when you dwell on scripture. So Psalm 139, and I'm just gonna read part of it. David says this, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word in my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And he goes on to say, O Lord, you know all the days you had ordained for me when as yet there was none. God knows the present. 
He says, he knows, Paul, when you're standing up and sitting down. God knows the future. He says, Paul, before you stand up, I know the words on your tongue. He knows the future as well as the present because God is the God of the future. He's in control. And, you know, it's just everything, (laughs) everything God knows. You know, sometimes in the fall time, I stand or I sit and I look at a maple tree. And, you know, the leaves fall down. Some leaves will just go like this. They'll fall straight down. Other leaves will go like this. They'll circle around. Did you know every leaf that falls off a tree, the Lord knows its way? I mean, you cannot exhaust the sovereignty of God. But what does that mean to you and I? It means that every situation we face, God knows. God is not silent. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. God is concerned for two sparrows. The most house sparrows, I will say, not a song sparrow. (laughs) They're the most worthless bird. But two sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from his will. We have a bird feeder in front of our house. It's very interesting. You know, you watch the birds when they come. You know, you have a bird feeder. The bird will come six feet away. He'll look up. He'll look down. He'll look to the right. Then he'll come to the bird feeder. He'll look up. Is there a hawk? He'll look down. Is there a cat? He'll look to the left. Is there a blue jay? I mean, they're, they're always looking over their back. They're so fearful. But it says what? It says, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. You're more valuable than a bird. Why? Because God loves you. He sent Christ to die to you, to redeem, to redeem you. You're more valuable to him. And, and so you have to let it rest there. So God's omniscience is comforting because God cares for us. And there's, all of this would be mute if there were not a second character of God, and that's God's omnipotence, God's power to accomplish it. God can know everything. You can know something, but if you don't have power to deal with it, then, then you are not, um, it doesn't help. Listen to this. The second character of God is his omnipotence. In Deuteronomy 33, it says this, according to your days, so shall your strength be. Meaning God provides strength day by day. Day by day. And the, a good illustration is, is Israel when they left Egypt. Did you know that I read that it that to feed all the Israelites in one day took more than 20 freight trains, 20, 20 f- trains of boxcars, <laughs> you know, uh, to feed all the people in one day. And God said he will provide manna for them every day. He didn't say, I'll give you manna on Sunday and you save it for Tuesday. Every day they were to trust God. The New Testament says what? Pray for our daily bread. We live in the present. We don't live in the future. And not only that, listen to this. In Deuteronomy 2.7, it says this. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have not lacked a thing. 40 years. He provided 20 freight car trains of food, and they didn't lack a thing. That's the God that you and I have who knows everything and is able. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Who is the Lord? He's the Lord who provided for all of Israel 40 years, and they never lacked anything. And he's our God, too. You have to understand who God is, and you have to let it rest there. Elizabeth Elliot says this, the future is not our province. We are meddling with God's business when we let all manner of imaginings loose, predicting disaster, contemplating possibilities instead of following. One day at a time, God's plain and simple pathway. As thy days, so shall be thy strength, was Moses' blessing for Asher. 
In other words, your strength will equal your days. God knows how to apportion each one's strength according to the day's need, however great or small. It's like this. God is a thermostat. You have a thermostat that controls the temperature in your house. It controls when the heat goes on, and it controls how long it goes on. God knows everything he brings in your life from the smallest thing, the trial, how long it's going to be, and the degree that it's going to be. Spurgeon says, wisdom hangs up the thermometer at the mouth of the furnace. The implication is, wisdom says we'll trust in our sovereign God that he knows the trial that he brings, how bad it is, and how long it's going to be. But there's another aspect of God in relating to fear. God can know all things, God can be able, but it's God is in control, God's sovereignty. Psalm 103 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. He's our creator. And because God created everything, he's over everything. What does the New Testament say? He is the potter, we are the clay. Now I wanna take you to an amazing passage. This is where a passage where Daniel rebukes a pagan king. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was proud, he was arrogant, and he was the world ruler at the time, and he thought he accomplished it, God had to humble him, and he actually, I believe, the text supports he became a believer because he humbled himself and realized there was one God. But he had a son, Belshazzar, and his Belshazzar had a, had a wild party, and, and he saw a hand that wrote on the wall, mini, mini, taku, parsin, and he couldn't understand what it meant. Daniel came and interpreted the, the dream. And he said this in Daniel chapter five, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And he ends with this, he says this, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Think about that. This is a pagan king, and Daniel tells him, you know what? God holds your breath in his hands. All your ways are in the hands of God. And the pagan king is supposed to recognize that because he's supposed to have seen, observed what God did with his father. And here's the thing. All of us here, we have the New Testament. We have the Old Testament. Do we recognize it? I mean, here's a pagan king, but do you and I not only recognize it, but do we trust in our heart? And by resting in God's sovereignty, do you let him have his way? It's one thing to know all the theological answers, God is sovereign, answer all the questions every Sunday morning, but do you rest in it? And how do you know if you rest in it? It's if you submit to God, if you let God have his way. By God's sovereignty, can you endure? By God's sovereignty, can you not fret? By God's sovereignty, can you not be preoccupied with the issue? That's what it means to really understand sovereignty when it goes from your head to your heart. Consider with me for a moment the story of Noemi and Ruth. And you remember those dot-to-dot -dot picture books that we did as a child. You, have, you go from one to two, and you start going around, and pretty soon you start guessing, you know, what's, what is the picture going to be? Well, look what happened to Noemi. First, there's a famine, number one. Then they go to Moab. Oh, a Jewish person is going to a Gentile country. You wonder, okay, one and two. Then all of a sudden, her husband dies. That's number three. Then what happens? Then her two sons die. And you're looking at this picture and you go, what is happening? What is God doing? I don't understand it. And so she says, call me Mara. You know, God has forgotten about me. But here's the point. God is sovereign and all of that. What happened at the end? Noemi became the great grandmother to David. And the point is, many times the, we don't understand, but it's endurance through it that helps us through. Look at what James says about Job. And we began a little bit with Job. It says, you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. 
he saw that at the end. Noemi saw that she was blessed with a grandchild. And, and the same thing, the writer of Hebrews says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You have to endure through this by God's grace. But I wanna give you some solid reasons that will help you to endure. So all too often, all too often, sovereignty is in the head, but there's a difference, thing, difference between resting in it. One man said, stabilize your soul with the sovereignty of God, and he continues, God's answer for troubled times has always been the same. Heaven has an occupied throne. Think about that. God is in control, he's on his throne, but how do you and I go from knowing that to resting in that? How do you go from our head to our heart? So I want to go a little bit farther and give you some real-life examples from people in the Bible that are just like you and I, how we can go from our head to our heart when we fear. And there's a fourth antidote. We've talked about God's knowing, God is able, and God is control. But we want to look at Joseph. To these things of God's sovereignty, we want to add God's goodness. This is very important because it's one thing to acknowledge God's goodness, but you have to couple that with his goodness because a person can be sovereign, but they can be evil. This like I worked under Eastern Europe, under communism. Ceausescu was one of the worst dictators. You had Enver Hoxha, who was the dictator of Albania. They were sovereign, but they were evil. And this, again, is the trouble. We as Christians know God is sovereign, but when we have difficulty, we don't understand it. We can quickly say God is sovereign when all of a sudden something good happens, but when something bad happens, we question God's sovereignty. That's where you have to link sovereignty with goodness. How do we do that? Well, I know you know of these passages, but you, we need to land there. Genesis 50, 20. Speaking of Joseph, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In Romans 8.28, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's not enough to know God is sovereign. You have to know that he's good. Jeremiah 29 says this, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. In the first case, this is applying to Israel. Israel is going into captivity, and they would wonder, God, have you forgotten about us? God says, no, I have plans for future and a hope. And by the way, God's promises for Israel have not been eclipsed by the church. He has a plan. And secondarily, it applies to us. We know that the same thing is true with believers because we know of passages of like Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good. Joseph rested in that. And we could talk a whole Sunday on this, but I need to go to a second one. Not only does Joseph remember God's goodness, but Joshua. Joshua remembers God's promises. And this is an outline. In your mind, when you face fear, you need to land on God's sovereignty, you need to land on God's goodness, now you need to land on his promises. Joshua chapter one, we read this. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, and this is God speaking to Joshua, Arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. 
And those of you that know that song that's going around the world now, listen to this next verse. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river of the Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. And he says, just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. The land promise is not abrogated. It's still in place, but the whole foundation, over and over in this section, and I could go farther, God tells Joshua, do not fear. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. But the basis is what? The basis is God. He says, I swore. It was God's promise. And you can go back in Genesis. It was an unconditional promise. And that's how we face fear. It's God's promises. There's so much in here. But let me just give you one example of a promise. And you need to keep your own list of promises. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We face things, and one of the things we think, we're the only one, woe is me. But you know what? There's a lot of other people that have faced it too. And it says God is faithful. That's the whole point. It's the character of God. Then he says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. There you have God's control. God has a limit. He's not going to allow you to go beyond what you're able. He has a limit. And the problem is, in a trial, you wonder, I've already at my limit. God, I can't bear it. But you need to know God has his hand in the thermostat. And then he says this, with the temptation, and by the way, in the Greek, you can translate that temptation or trial. Simultaneously, you could say, with the trial, God will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure. It's a summary of what we've talked about so far. God is in control. God, God will allow you, will not allow the trial to be more than you can bear, and, and with his help, you can endure. It's a promise, and it's a promise. But, but remember this, that promises are not something to be remembered in your head. And I want to say this. It's, it, it's so important. The word of God should not lead us to head knowledge. You can know the whole catechism, you can know the whole systematic theology, but it should lead you to hope and to trust. Peter says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does he say? Prepare your minds for action. This biblical information shouldn't make you passive. It should change you. It should prepare your minds for action. What does James say? Be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. But there's a, there's a second thing that we want to look at, and that is the Apostle Paul, to remember God's past providences, God's past providences. So that should be providences there, not um, promises in your outline. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Let me read this, because this, this is a, such of a pregnant statement, you can look over and over and over in the Bible at the principle of what's taught here. Paul says this, first, 2 Timothy 4.17, but the Lord stood with me, there you have the issue, the Lord is with them, same thing David says we'll look at. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Then he goes to the next verse, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now notice the link here. The assurances of the past led Paul to the assurance of the future. 
And you can find this over and over in the psalm. In fact, last time we looked at Psalm 77, and I pointed out how the past providences leads him to look to the future. Paul says here, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. That is a euphemism for death. We, you can read the book of Acts where Paul was stoned and he was left for dead. And that, doesn't hap- that didn't just happen once. It happened multiple times. Paul said, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. But what did he do? He looked back and he didn't, wasn't fearful. He looked back and he said, God rescued me. You know, you, you can hear of PTSD and that's another thing with fear. When I, remember when I started, you can fear if God did this once, is God going to do it again? You look back, and instead of looking at the fearful incidents, you say, the Lord rescued me. Paul looked back, God rescued me. He wasn't land on the fact, oh, the lion, and you could be paralyzed by thinking that over and over. He said, God rescued me. But then he went from that to the future. He said, and he will bring me to his heavenly kingdom. So here we see the will of God is perfect. God had the power to save him in the past, and he rests in that, and he confidently places his future in the hands of God. Now, someone might say, Paul. Well, the apostle Paul was martyred. How, that, that just, how, how can he say the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom? Well, he's martyred. Where is the apostle Paul today? He's in heaven. How does Revelation describe heaven? There's no tear or suffering Uh, we don't need any sun because you have Christ there. I mean, it's a much better place. He was, he he is safe there. Um, Now, I want to clarify something here because there's a sense you can get, I'm driving forward, but I'm driving looking in the rearview mirror. You know, sometimes looking back can instill more fear. And and this is what I want to point out, that when you look back, you need to look that it's the Lord who got you through. Let me give you an example. The other day I was driving on a road and it was the same road that I took to go from from home to hospital to see my wife in the hospital. Uh, Many, many times, two in the morning, five in the morning, you know, you're going back. And I looked at that road and I go, that's fearful. I remember everything that happened in my mind when I was going on the road. And, And you can rest there. But then I thought, Paul, you know what? The Lord was with you. The Lord took you out. And so you have a choice. When you think of those fearful things in the past, remember the Lord got you through. And he got you through, and he will get you through again. That's the very thing that Paul did in this passage in in Timothy. Um, So that's remember God's past providences. You can find this over and over and over. Israel always said, look back when your God took you out of Egypt. They were to look at that, the strength of God, and they were to apply that to their present situation. You and I, can too, because it's the same God. We, we worship the same God. Look at Peter. Let's look at one more Peter. Look to Christ. In Matthew 14, we have a very interesting occurrence, and very interesting, this follows the feeding of the 5,000. It's such a good example of having something go from your head to your heart. Here they're with Christ, and they see him do this miracle, feeding 5,000. You'd think, oh, you know, God can do anything, you know, but yet here was Jesus walking on the water, and it says the disciples saw him, and they said, they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid, Matthew 14, 27. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water, and he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus, but seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? 
And so that occasion happened after seeing the Lord do a miracle. Um, and we see here the disciples were gripped by fear. How did Peter deal with this? And before I go to that, I want to say something else that's very interesting. Remember we talked about looking to the future, how that can cause fear? Listen to what Jesus told Peter. He said this in John 21. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you, bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now we said this, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. He told Peter, you're going to die of crucifixion. Now, if I was Peter, I would be wondering, well, if I say this, Paul, you know, is that going to be your day? <laughs> you would always wonder, when is that going to happen? I'd be fearful. And many times, I used to think when I was a new Christian, it'd be very nice to know what, where I would be in five years or ten years. But then I concluded, you know, the Lord, by his grace, has to prepare us for those times. Peter knew that he was going to die by crucifixion, but he didn't live in fear. Why? Why was that? He said this, he said this, Peter said this in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. Peter prayed. Also, Peter learned the lesson of fixing his eyes on Christ. Hebrews says, fixing her eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith. Peter, who was bold with Christ, was bold without Christ. You see in Acts chapter, in Acts, Peter gave a sermon at Pentecost. He was just as bold then as he was with Christ. Why? You can trace that to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also gives us, gives us boldness. But I just want to share um, uh, something of how, of how fear, how, how fear works um, and how the Lord's um, uh, sovereignty works. Um, uh, there is, let me see, I think, uh, well, let's, look, let's go to the next one. Let's, let's look at David. Remember that God is with you. Remember that God is with you. This is a principle that we see over and over. We see that with Joshua. David says this in Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God said the same thing to Joshua. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. Joshua saw firsthand how God was with Moses. God said, I'm going to be with you the same way. Psalm 27, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Even if an army camps against me, I will not fear. Isaiah 41, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That, that takes on more significance when you understand who is the God that says that. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, Hebrews chapter 13. So we, we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, the secret of contentment in the light of fear is that the Lord will never desert you, never forsake you, and the Lord is with you. We could look at this for a whole Sunday, but let me go to another bedrock, the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah, and that's in Psalm 46. Psalm 46. And in this psalm, in this psalm, I'm just going to read the first few verses, and we've, uh, Matt went through this uh, psalm some years ago. We see this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. 
though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Over and over, I go to this virtually almost every day. This, this is what the psalm does. First of all, it says, God is our refuge and strength. And it says, one translation says, a very present help in trouble. The Holman translation says, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found. To me, that's, that's more definite. It's, it's saying the same thing, a helper that's always found. As a result, what does he say? Therefore, I'm not gonna fear. And then he takes it farther. He says, I'm not gonna fear even if the mountains fall into the sea. The implication is the most stable thing there is in the physical universe, a mountain. Even if the mountains fall apart, the most stable thing, I'm not gonna fear. One of the first earthquakes I faced in California, the, the apartment was shaking, I, I ran out and I said, I'm gonna stand on the ground because the ground is stolid. I went to the ground and the ground started shaking. That's fearful, it's not supposed to shake. And you and I are facing, in our society, in our world, there's many things that we, take for granted, that are not as stable as they were before. And I'm not going to go into them, but you can apply them as you want to. What is our hope? God is more stable than them. And it's in this psalm, just very interestingly, there's, three, there's one word that's repeated three times. Notice verse 2, the mountains slip. You see that word? That word is topple. And he's saying in the physical universe that when things topple, I will not fear. Then in verses 4 to 7, the other stanza, you have the same thing. Look verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. She will not topple. So here you have the contrast. You have the physical. When the physical starts toppling, God is my refuge. Then you're in heaven with God. It says when you're with God, it will not topple. So there you have the solidity. And then you come to the last stanza, verses 8 to 11, and you have verses 6. It says, the nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered. That's what we see today. Kingdoms are toppling. And then he goes on to say, God makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow. He's striving. Know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. That psalm was the foundation of Martin Luther's song, um, that, that we're going to be singing at the end. And you know Martin Luther faced many different things. Uh, again, a very present help in trouble. I want to f finish with this last one, and we could go many more. <laughs> um, it, it's, you won't believe what I left out. Um, the Apostle John, remember perfect love. It says this, 1 John chapter 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Love is probably one of the greatest deterrents to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. But the corollary is also true. If a person greatly fears, they don't love. In other words, if you love, you have less fear. The more you fear, you have less love. Let me illustrate this. When we were in Austria, I was attending a, a missions conference in Berchtesgaden. It's the site of Hitler's eagle nest. And this was in the middle of wintertime. I hiked up the road several miles to the end of the road, where at the end of the road, there's an elevator that takes you from the road level to the actual building, the eagle's nest. And later I read that Hitler was deathly afraid of lightning. He was afraid that if he was in an elevator, the lightning, he would die. And, and it's interesting, you contrast that with this verse. Hitler was one of the most unloving people on this planet, but yet he was the most fearful. You can link unlove 
to being more fear. And you can also contrast it the other way. Um, I knew you probably heard of Corey Tenboom. She, her family um, hid Jews in their home and when the uh, SS found out, they sent her and her sister to the Ravensbrück concentration camp. There she said, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. When she got out, she was speaking in a church and there was a man in the back that came up and he was a prison guard. And you can imagine the thoughts that would come back to your mind of the past. And she, he asked, would you forgive me? And she didn't immediately just you know, forgive him, but she hesitated and she recognized all that had happened, but she realized that God loved her and forgave her sins and that's what's enabled her to love him and express forgiveness to him. Love trumps fear. Here's another. So love is the supreme defier of fear. Many years ago, I remember reading one of Jay Adams' books talking about phobias, fear. He talked about a lady that was fearful of going across a bridge. Then he said one day, this lady got a telephone call that her family member on the other side of the river was in desperate need for help. She immediately got in her car, drove across the bridge, and she never gave a second thought about fear for the bridge. Well, how does that work? The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Her love for a family member, member overcame her fear. So again, this is another important part about fears. It's love, but also I want to take it to another angle, and that is God's love for us. Romans says nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I want to just link, show you how this works. In one of the most recent issues, I think it's in December of this, this year, the Voice of Martyrs devoted an entire issue to interviewing survivors of persecution. And in this particular issue, they interviewed survivors of the Peshawar suicide bombing in Pakistan that killed 127 people by a Muslim suicide bomber. And they interviewed Fami, who lost his two children and his mother. And when that happened, he said this, I didn't know what to pray, I didn't know how to pray, and I didn't know what to say to God. That aptly describes someone who's in a fearful situation. Sometimes it just takes your breath away. And then he said this, he said it changed. Now listen to this, I want to see you how the principles, I'm telling you how it works. He said this, there was a pastor that came that spoke on the love of God. And he asked from Romans 8, he said, he said, what will separate us from the love of God? Will this persecution, will something else come that is just as bad? And there you have the fear of the future. And he said this, he said, I started to question myself while I was sitting in the church. And then I gave the same answer as Paul did in Romans, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And he said that was his first motivation and strengthening of his faith. What does the Bible say? Faith by hearing, hearing by the word of God. These principles I'm giving to you are not just intellectual ascents, but it works when you apply it in your heart, you ruminate it, and you apply it to our situations. No matter what you have gone through, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, you can trust your life to the one who died for you. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give all things? No matter who you are, you can trust the one who died for us. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. 
Maybe you see your life before you and you fear what comes next. Maybe you hesitate to give your life for Christ because you fear that you have to leave your sin that you enjoy so much. Maybe you fear what will happen if I give my life to Christ. You can trust the one who loved you and died for you. Maybe you're here today and you know that Christ died for you. Maybe you've heard all the doctrines of the faith and you can know the whole catechism by heart. But do you know, is it in your, is it in your heart? The question is, you need to know that everlasting arms will hold you up with the concern that comes ahead. You can trust the one who died for us. Let me close with this. We're going to be singing a song by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress in our is our God. Martin Luther one time was in conversation with Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was a fellow reformer. Melanchthon said this to Luther, Martin, what will we decide to talk about today? And Melanchthon said, well, why not discuss the governance of the universe? <laughs> to which Luther said, Luther said, this day you and I will go fishing and we'll leave the governance of the universe to God. We need to leave the results of 2024 in the hands of the Lord who governs the universe. We can look ahead with absolute confidence that God's timetable is on track, even if he seems silent. Our times are in his hand, and even when he seems silent. So you can trust the one who died for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a God in the heavens who orchestrates all things by the counsel of your will. Father, thank us. We thank you for scripture that informs us of who you are and that you're a good God and that you accomplish your will always on time. Thank you that there are other people in the Bible that are just like us, that had trouble resting in that. Father, may you help us to rest in your kindness, in your providence, and that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.